Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 207 on the OneOuter.com podcast. Alex, we are trying to do as many of these as we can. Our regular listeners know that they are going to be on an ad hoc basis. And today we are going to get some questions done. And when I put it out on Twitter last week that we were going to be recording a new episode, you see the local diehards get in touch and say, good on you, you know, everything's great. And we actually got a few more questions sent in as well, but um, I replied to them jokingly, no, you know, no, no promises when the next one after this is, but we will keep doing them as much as we can. So thanks for joining again today, Alex. Um, you're going to get through a few questions we've got. A couple of uh, sort of house notes. I do want to say uh, apologies to Chris O'Neill, if you're still listening, and also Keith Brandt, if you're still listening. Uh, I have you, you two were going to be discussed on this show, and you sent in emails a long time ago, probably. And all I've got is uh, for your question Chris O'Neill dot 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 email, Keith Brandt dot 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 email. I've went in to check the correspondent email, and something back whenever happened with mailboxes, and I've, I lost a chunk of emails. So, unfortunately, I've not copied and pasted your ones or saved it anywhere else. So if you still do have that question or indeed another one, please take the time to send those in and we will put, I'll put you right to the top of the queue for the next episode. This is why we win all the podcasting awards. That was the greatest segment to lead with, Barry. Well done. Hey, everybody, <laughs> hey, everybody who sent in your questions, it's been months and we lost them. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you want to send the question in and then wait six months for me to lose the email... And then wait another six months to get your answer. Then this is the show for you. Please get in touch. You know? Yeah, sorry. Continue with your thing. I was just dying here. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So I was like, you know, that we have to reach out. And hopefully those guys are still listening. Also, there was a competition winner. There's one more winner who didn't get ever back in touch. And I'll need to dig out his name because it was an old guy from, I think he was in Australia. Um, you'll know who he is anyway, and I've got his name saved still as a winner, but he's never got back in touch to pick up his copy of Alex's book, which I still have sitting here for him. So if you get in touch, then there is a book still sitting for you as well. Um, apart from that, we're really organized. Um, <laughs> so um, what we're going to do today is we are going to get through some questions that I do have from other listeners, and Alex is going to talk about a really exciting new product that he's got. And, you know, it's, it's not a spoiler because Alex has released it recently to his, newsla uh, his newsletter and I think also on Twitter and stuff as well. But it's I, I think I'm right in saying this is your first one you've done on cash games, Alex, is it? The very first one on cash games and probably the last one of these training packages I'm going to do for a very long time. Uh yeah, it's the first one in cash. It uh, it covers. It's called Master Small Six Cash Games in one class, and it was essentially my attempt to answer every question I've ever gotten about cash games in all my years of teaching, all the years I played cash. Uh, it's it's really fun. I think you guys would really enjoy it. Yeah. So um, maybe Chris O'Neill and Keith Brandt, if your questions were on cash games, just ignore me and buy this, and that way you'll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So we will get to that later in the show. So before we came on, um, Alex was a little bit late. So I've been sitting around doing bits and pieces on the computer. But we, we were chatting for a bit before we hit the record button. And we were talking about, you know, like whether it's, you know, quotes, wasting time. Alex watches his boxing or such and such. He's downtime. And I watch my old horror films or movies, etc. And I, I said to Alex, oh, we'll talk about it on the show. So Alex doesn't know either, but. I remember we used to talk about the old Twilight Zones from years ago, and it was either for my last birthday or Christmas, and my fiance she got me the full box set of the original Twilight Zones, you know, the black and white, all on Blu-ray. So I've been watching these things, Alex, and they are unreal. I didn't realize the first episode was 1959 or something like that. Like wow. the, the ones I've been watching just now are 1959. 60 years ago and I'm watching these things now on Blu-ray and it's 
at the end of each episode, they've even got the sort of like, now for a word from our, you know, sponsors and stuff, the old sort of commercial thing, like they would have been on CBS like, or whatever back in the day. And then you have uh, Rod Serlin, the creator, doing his little segues of, you know, next week on Twilight Zone, we're going to be, and he's sitting there in a seat with a cigarette, you know, so politically incorrect these days. But I just <laughs> find them fascinating and watching them in such good quality. And people talk about, you know, the golden age of TV, the last 10 years or last 15 years, all the box sets and stuff. I think I'm about 13 or 14 episodes in, and they're only 20, 25 minute episodes. You know what they're like. And every one of them has just been like insane, insanely good. The feel, you know, obviously some of the special effects and stuff are a little bit, you know, it's 60 years old. But the storytelling, the narration with Rod Serling doing that over the top, some of the actors like Burgess Meredith, and you know, it's a whole who's who of people that have done Twilight Zone episodes and the twists in things. Even there's not been an episode that's made the biggest compliment. It's not been an episode I've watched that I've grabbed my phone during it and like started aimlessly scrolling on Twitter or whatever. And so I've been really been enjoying those. So I've got. Yeah, every episode ever made of it to like watch through and blurry thing. And I, you know, I'm one of these people that harks back to nostalgic time and oh, things were great in the the 80s and 90s when you rented VHS from Blockbuster, etc. But come on, you're sitting here with hundred odd episodes, over a hundred or I don't know how many it is. You know, on perfect Blu-ray quality. People used to watch these things weekly and wait wait a whole week for the next one. So. Yeah, I just wanted to give a big like shout out rant. If if you're looking for something like that coming into the winter months and you want to watch, like I can't recommend the original Twilight Zone, the black and white ones. Um, pick up the Blu-ray box set on Amazon. You know that's it. And I've I've no affiliate codes or anything for that. So just just go <laughs> and buy it if you enjoy that sort of thing. They've really been good, and you know I've not seen many of the original ones. So that was I just I always remember you used to talk about them, Alex. Like the one where the guy's playing cards and stuff like that so yeah that one was earth shattering no i uh one of the worst uh days of my privileged white life was when they took the twilight zone off of costa rica netflix was uh it, because it was on uh netflix costa rica back when i was there for like 7 days and i was just binging every twilight zone because other than the Blu-ray, you can't really find it anywhere, right? Like, it's not on any streaming service. It's not... I mean, I'm sure you could probably find some Chinese site that streams it. And just like you were saying, every one of those episodes just leaves your head and your brain in knots. It's... Uh, yeah. If you're in the Black Mirror, the best comparison I can give it to people these days that would be current is... This is what Black Mirror came from, is the Twilight Zone. And you will watch the Twilight Zone and notice every one of their plot lines has been ripped off 20 times oh, yeah. since then. And none of them have done it as well. And yeah, it's a it's really funny when they go to the old advertisements and stuff like, drink Postum, coffee is bad for you, and stuff like that. <laughs> it's, it's so dated these days. But yeah, I guess we should, uh, now that we've given a shout out to a 50-year-old show, maybe we should get into the poker. Yeah, that's that's right. Okay, so the first question I got here is quite a long one, and uh, I'm just going to read it out, and it's from Callum. Uh, just a quick question for Alex, whenever you find the time to fit it in. I think some similar stuff has been asked before, but this is a little bit more specific. Feel free to skip it if you think it's already been answered. I am well used to multi-tabling cash, and I generally five-table six max when I'm playing, increasing it or decreasing it by one if I'm feeling in the zone or the tables are playing particularly fast and are short-handed or have very specific player types that I want to pay more attention to. However, last night I was three-tabling five-euro five tournaments and felt almost overwhelmed at what was going on. The fact I was the chip leader in one a short stack in another and a re-steal stack in another didn't help. Neither did the fact that one was in the money with big payout jumps, one was on the bubble and the other one still had some distance from the money. Cash can get quite robotic at times and seems a lot easier to multi-table. 
in tournaments, there seem to be so many different spots that come up where small things can drastically change your ranges and strategy. Deep in tournaments, thanks to Alex for the most part, even at a six-handed table, I'm drastically altering my opening ranges and sizes based on stacks and positions. And I was surprised at how much this overwhelmed me just playing three tournaments at a time. Are there any good ways to organise your thinking in this regard? Or is it just a case of continuing to pack in the volume until you recognise spots more quickly and don't have to think about them as much? Just to clarify, by the way, I play on a site where HUDs aren't possible to use. Thanks for your time. Hey, Callum, really good question. Uh, that is an adage you hear a lot from uh, professional pay poker players, which is just pack in the volume and you will get better. And there's some truth to that. But if you watch esports now, there's a certain age when a lot of these guys kind of age out from the really rapid hand-eye coordination that would be required in first-person shooters or something like that. And there was, for a time, I felt, when I was 21 and I would play online, I, I could do it 12 hours a day and just see things like within a couple seconds and act on them. And as I got older, I don't know if it's as you become more mature, you start noticing more situations that you have to more careful, carefully calibrate for, or if it's just you slow down, I think you need to start relying on statistics, which of course you just said is not possible in your games. But if you ever are on a site where you can use HUDs, what I did was color code a lot. And if you read The Myth of Poker Talent, that book is pretty much a love letter to the HUD because there was a time I started noticing like, wow, bluster and forbetting everything doesn't work anymore. There was a time in No Limit Hold'em tournaments that if you opened when other people were not three betting and you just three bet the guy who was opening too much, you were going to win poker tournaments. That was it because nobody was taking that kind of initiative. That was still back during the days of don't go broke with a queen in your hand. Hey, if somebody shoves 11 big blinds and you have ace 10 in the big blind, don't call off there. It's for your entire tournament life, etc. So there was a lot of times where people should have been calling or should have been defending in a certain way that they weren't doing so. And if you push people around, you got more folds than necessarily you deserved. There came a time right around Black Friday. Uh, I, I think the Europeans were a little bit more educated as far as just the basic mathematics of the game. Uh, a lot of that sweet, juicy American money was no longer in the game. Uh, you really did have to become far more technical and you did have to automate a lot of these things, which is, okay, let's say I have I, I have 6-5 suited in the hijack. Should I open that? Well, what you could do if you had infinite time is just look at every 3-bet to your left. You see 13%, 11%, 10%. Well, maybe not. I'm not going to open this. Uh, now, if you're rapidly multi-tabling, maybe you don't have time to look at all of them individually. So what you can do, it's almost... Okay, the actual analogy that went in my head, it's almost like multi-ball in a pinball machine, if you just stare at the flippers, you're not going to have enough time to react to the balls coming and you can't follow each ball individually. So you have to kind of soften your eyes and look at the entire board. What you do is you color code and then I would have the three bet of like 6%, 5%, 4%, whatever it was, be green or red, depending on whatever it was. But you could change it depending on your opinion. Some people like it red because, oh my God, every time they three bet, they have a hand. Some people like a green, which means go ahead and open this hand, uh, whatever you want to do, but you got to know which color code works for you. And then you could just look to your left, see four green numbers or three green numbers, one yellow, whatever it was, and then you could open. And that kind of automation did get, uh, would get you ahead. Where, where a lot of the money I found was made in cash was because you were right, there weren't, people don't have a great appreciation for how much tournament situations change things, uh, which you clearly are starting to understand, which is why it's so difficult. I, I was just like you, I found uh, 100 NL, you could easily make 4K, 5K a month with rake back and putting in a ton of hours because a lot of it was, should I open this hand? Look to the left, look to the numbers, yes or no. 
should I three bet this hand? Look at his raise first hand, yes or no. Uh, and, and a lot of just basic board reading. And then if a you know a big hand happened with this guy, or you'd see bet him a couple times, try to remember and try try to stay ahead of where his reaction might be. And yeah, but those stacks didn't really change. The guys who like to buy in for 50 big blinds had 50 big blinds. The guy who had 100 out of 100. And there was some consistency in that. And this, that does come up in master small stakes cash games in one class where if you have 50 big blinds, 100 big blinds, if you set yourself up correctly, and that comes up in all of the episodes, if you set up the pre-flop situations correctly, you'll see the flop turn and river play themselves out much more appropriately. Whereas in tournaments, you have more options, you have more plays afforded to you, but you also have to be much more aware of it. So the one way I found that you might not be using is there's some sites that don't allow HUDs, but you can have software that allows you to automate button presses and stuff like that. Uh, Table Ninja was the big one back in the day. And some of those will list the stack size next to the stack, right? Or something along those lines. And that was really good because you take a move like the check raise. Uh, check raise is not really a good idea as just a complete bluff in reg infested 100 big blind cash games because they see that they're 3.5x, you check raise 8.5x. They go, I don't really buy this. I'll call. Well, oh crap, you still have like 89x behind you to play with. And they get to see what you do on the Turner River. Whereas you have somebody who has a 33x open. That's something you should really train yourself to look for as fast as possible. Somebody opens 33 big blinds from the hijack, you're in the big blind. A lot of times you should be more inclined to call out of the big blind because if you check raise to 7x, 8x, that's if the guy wants to defend against you, he needs to flat for a third of his chips. He needs to jam with a high card. And neither of those things are very likely. So the only thing I can tell you is in tournaments, I think... The name of the game is playing fewer tables. There's a lot of elite performers that play much less than they used to. Rest is a much bigger deal than it used to be. I think the high volume, minimal ROI is just a variance bomb, especially if you focus on the major tournaments on the dot-com sites. If you ever go to pokerdope.com and input an 8,000-person field and you having a 40% ROI, there's still nearly a 50% chance over 10 years you won't turn a profit in it just because of how much variance there is in that. If you want to focus on small fields, if you can find regular pools that you can take notes on, even if there are not HUDs, uh, small fields, intense reads on consistent regulars, fewer tables, I do think there is uh, a point of profitability on that. I do think that is very very much a way that you can deal with tournaments. I like that you're dealing with it by playing less tables at a time as opposed to going, well, I can six-table cash. I can obviously three-table tournaments, or I can obviously six-table tournaments. Uh, I, I would say really look at the stack size. Uh, with. I like that you were focusing on the men cash. The other thing I would have you do is narrow your scope on the ICM uh, considerations you want to focus on. And I, you already had a really good one, which is you're on the bubble with a weak stack. Uh, if you can just min cash in that, that's usually worth more than your chips are worth in that tournament. I'd really focus on that one. Uh, but for the most part, I think a lot of people tear their brains apart trying to be ICM perfect. Whereas there's certain things like, oh, I had a big stack in the middle of the tournament. Should I have coasted into the cash? And it's like, well, not really. You're, you're still, there, it's very likely you still won't cash this tournament. You should be trying to acquire chips. If everybody else has 20, 30, 40 big blinds and you have 70 big blinds, you should be threatening their stack every time they open. Like, even though uh, obviously you're closer to a men cash and you see people torture themselves with really small things like that, which I, I think if you really want to get better into the ICM stuff, you should get a copy of ICMizer 2. Uh, and play with that in your free time and make sure that gets to the point of unconscious competence. But for the most part, at the beginning of tournaments, you're dogfighting. It's very close to a cash game. Just do a lot of your cash game stuff. The middle of the tournaments, hopefully you've put yourself in an advantageous chip position. Uh, and 
you are taking advantage of all the middling stacks. If you are a middling stack yourself, you are looking around the table for the people that can identify that and exploit that, and you're carefully avoiding them. Uh, and if you're a short stack, just know your jam charts. That's pretty much it. And if you're still far out from the money, don't tear your hair out. Just play normal. Uh, you'll, you'll gradually learn all of that. Pay attention to the stack sizes. And once you get into the money, I see a lot of people also tear their hair out trying to lock at lock up every payout jump in a lot of these online tournaments where they're paying out so much of the field the the payout jumps are so minuscule to begin with i i think you should just the next biggest payout jump is going to be from second to first i think you should really work to develop your stack at that point if there are people that still do not want to put their money on the line and continue from that point forward okay and just um i was going to say a couple of things rather than just talk about the twilight zone um, I, was, I was just thinking when you were talking about it there and also going back to my, you know, I used to play more multi-table the tournaments and stuff and it was mainly turbos on stars. So I totally get that. I remember having, you know, 10 plus, you know, sometimes 20 tables on the go combining sit and goes with some mad turbos. And you really, when it's the same game, you know, if it's just 180s or whatever you're playing, you will know even you start to learn even when you're looking at the table what chips are sort of in play and what stack sizes where roughly you are and then you can have a quick check in the lobby you know or click the little bit at the bottom left to tell you how many is remaining etc and you know where the cash but what he's saying is you know you're playing you know a 2000 field uh, game you know maybe another one you're down to 40 players left etc i think what happens is when you're going down that route, and Alex will, you know, can probably chime in here as well, it's like there if you're going down the route of I'm multi-tabling and putting in a huge volume and I'm just going for that, you, there's nothing you can do. You, you're, of course, going to be sacrificing EV and edge every table you add until you hit a sweet... And it's probably finding that sweet spot of where you're in control without having an anxiety attack and knowing where you are and what you can check on you know on your stack sizes and uh picking spots and having a look and really playing the game otherwise you know once you get past a certain number of tables you are just doing push fold type poker and, and losing the edge there and inviting more variance into your life um with that so th there's always going to be that trade-off rather than just loading up one two hundred dollar tournament and sitting and focusing, or 109 tournament, or whatever, and sitting focusing. So it's probably finding that sweet spot as well, isn't it, Alex? Yes, sir. I think something you're bringing up uh, that's really important. I always tell people game selection is 90% of your job as a professional poker player. Uh, it does not matter. It, you could be the 10th best poker player on earth. It, obviously, the old adage goes, if you're sitting at the table with the nine best, you're the sucker in the game. Whereas if you have medium talent, like most of us have, let's be perfectly honest, myself included, if you have a decent grasp of the game and some aptitude for it and some discipline, almost entirely what your career will be determined by is your ability to get in softer games. And if you're in, if let's say you get onto a site that has really soft tournaments or really soft games, uh, you can spread yourself pretty thin because people are going to, you are going to lose something as Barry was discussing. Obviously you're not going to be as 100% focused, but you will gradually get a feel for the site of what those passive players do that you can take advantage of. And more or less, they'll still be stuck in the same course of poker development, which will have more or less the same, which will more or less reward the same inputs. Uh, versus, let's say you are trying to make money on pokerstars.com, or the lo your local game actually has a few gunners, you're gonna have to pay serious attention. You're going to have to, if you're playing live, you have to have your, you have to have your phone out recording notes like every, every hand. You should be writing something down uh, about their baseline behavior, about whether they like to check back draws or double double barrel draws, collecting information, collecting a profile, and then 
categorizing that on a later date so you can execute more ample reads, more exacting reads. Uh, that is what's going to get you ahead. Now, it sounds like the site you're using doesn't have a HUD. That I really like hearing. That hopefully is like a local lottery site or sportsbook site or something like that. Those are good. I think as long as you're in one of those games, right, especially those like legalized government sites are really good or any site that was just kind of hitched to the ass end of a sports book that's popular in your country. A lot of those sites are just about getting in the game and keeping your head together, right? You will make mistakes. It is, you do not walk into a fist fight and not expect to get punched in the face. And you're going to have to put your helmet on when you're in a lot of these sites because you are going to see goofy things nonstop. And the truth is, it's going to be impossible to anticipate all of it. But the fact is, if you keep a cool head and have a reason for everything you do and you analyze yourself at the end of the day and uh, try to grab whatever numbers you can, if there's any way you can process the hands at a later date by saving them and putting them into a database, some sites that don't allow HUDs will allow you to do that. Just make sure you get their permission. As long as you keep working on your game at that point and keeping a cool head, you will make money. Okay. Right. Alex, I think we're going to do something different. I think I'm just thinking there. We were talking about cash and that there. We've talked about your new product. Um, let's talk about master small stakes cash games in one class. Give us a little bit of the rundown on that. Um, it's the first time I'll be sort of like reading anything about it as well. And then we will go to a final question from Herb Vasquez. We'll do that at the end. So we'll sandwich this in so people don't get a chance to just listen to the questions and then switch off the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, uh, first off, I just want to thank you guys for supporting the One Outer podcast. I, uh, I mean, long story short, people have always asked me about poker because it's I have not had a legit job, legit paycheck since 2006 because I've been kicking around the world playing cards. Would never call myself a great player, but enough to pay the bills, keep keep a health insurance plan, you know, the basics, get groceries that aren't always top ramen, but have stayed in the game. And it was just one of those things years ago, people would say, what do you do in this spot? And I'd say, oh, do X, Y, and Z. I had a problem with that for years. Uh, this is what works. And then they'd come back to me two weeks later and they'd say, hey, that really worked. It took me a whopping eight years to figure out I could record that and put that on a site. And for a nominal fee, because you think about it, personal lessons cost hundreds of dollars an hour. And most people cannot pay $2,000, $3,000 for 15 hours of training. Now you can get it for $100, $200 from the site. And I was thinking people are buying these anyway. I wonder if they want to throw a couple bucks Barry's way if we could do that and keep the podcast on you guys resoundingly answered. So we really appreciate that. Uh, I actually really enjoy doing the podcast. I really love doing that. And I'm really happy that we can be back here. So I want to thank you guys for that as well. But yeah. Master small stakes cash games in one class. It's about the games that uh, people actually play. It's about one, two, no limit, hold them. It's about one pound, one pound, no limit, hold them in your local game. It's about, one, two, no limit Oldham is played every country I have ever been to. I've been to 40 something countries or something like that. They all have one, two. In uh, Seoul, South Korea, there was one, two. Uh, there was uh, one, two in Hungary. One, two in Uruguay. There's one, two in Panama. There's one, two. It's hard to find a city in the United States of America that is not spreading one, two. That is what 90% of people play. And. It's really funny to me that a lot of the training material seems to be, all right, we're going to find the most game theory optimal way to play heads up. And I would always think when I see that, hey, last time I was in San Francisco and I got a chance to play in San Jose, about 90% of the pots I played were multi-way, right? And that's one of the questions everybody has is, hey, when I watch poker training on the internet, the guy opens from under the gun and everybody folds around to the big blind. Yet when I go do, to my local game, that never happens. <laughs> so what am I supposed to do? And I thought, the hell with it. I'll take a crack at it. And it took a month. Uh, it was, 
I was going to say it was extremely fun to put together, but I'm not going to lie. I kind of lost my mind doing it because it's like putting together a South Park season, right? You're just 59 minutes to air or whatever it is. You got to get this going. And you put together 20 of these episodes. It takes time. But at the end, now that it's done, I'm really happy with it, which is because there's so many of these things that it comes up all the time, and yet I don't think there's like a common answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one on Barry right now. Barry, so let's say you're playing. You play a lot of cash locally, or you used to, in the United Kingdom. Uh, one, two, or something like that. You get three limpers in your game, and you're on the button with ace-jack suited. How many big blinds do you raise to? Sometimes 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, 10, right? At least. <laughs> but okay, I, I'm really, I really appreciate your honesty. Would that be considered when you tell that to other people? Do they consider that a big raise or a small raise? Some people. Well, it depends who you're playing guys. Sometimes you know, if, if it's if it's say it used to be like one one, some of the smallest game you know I play. So you yeah. know one one, and then sometimes there's straddle two four one. But say it's one one, and there's like three limpers. There's like five in the pot. If I made it like say even eleven there or twelve, pe some people would be like, "Whoa, like what's so much or whatever." But sometimes that's getting normally. Even if I make that ten there, I'm expecting at least like two callers sometimes as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and here's uh here's something I've done since I was younger. There'd be three limpers, right? So you got four point five x in the pot. I just make it fifteen x on the bottom. Just fifteen x. Now, here's the thing. Everybody goes, what the hell is wrong with you? But most likely, the most common reaction, if I told you to make it 15x with aces, most people's protestation is, I'm not going to get any action with this, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that is absolutely amazing when you have ace-jack suited, because guess what? If everybody folds, you make four and a half big blinds, that was more than the expectation for that hand, right? But here's the real reason. That's not why you do it. But that, I only said that because... People act like when everybody folds, it's a terrible thing. It's like ace-jack suited is worth like two and a half big blinds. If you look at any database, if you're lucky, if you are a maestro on the button. So you locking up 4.5x, not the worst thing in the rule. But let me tell you why I make it 15x. Because let's say there's a guy at, you know those guys who are like okay at poker, but they don't read a poker book or anything like that? If you make it like 9x there, and you got 100x back, what are they thinking with their pocket sixes? Oh, I've got implied odds, right? I got 10 to 1. I don't know where that came from, but that's everybody's thing, right? I got 10 to 1. So then under the gun plus two calls, now low jack calls, now high jack calls, now you have a four-way pot, which means you need to hit the board, right? Mm -hmm. it, sometimes you have an entire year you don't hit the board. I don't want to gamble on that. But if you make it 15x... The guy who knows a little something, he's going to go, why so much? And he's going to give you the angry fold. You know what I'm talking about, Barry? Yeah. The, yeah. Like, the stare at you fold <laughs> when they do it. Like, how dare you? But who's the guy who's going to call? Who's the guy who's going to call? That's the punter, right? Mm -hmm. Who do you think thinks it's a great idea to limp call 15x out of position? It's not the best player at the table. It's not even the guy who knows a couple of tricks. It's usually, here's the thing that uh, frustrates me when you put these situations against bots. The bots never get frustrated. So you'll make it 15x and everybody will fold it forever, right? That does not happen with humans. The second time you do it, someone plays sheriff. And yeah. the guy who's playing sheriff is not disciplined. And guess what just happened? You now have a 35x pot in position with a superior hand versus who is most likely the worst player at the table. You would have to be the dumbest poker player on God's green earth to not make a profit in that situation. But every time I give that situation, I have done a survey of that situation with hundreds of poker players. What do you think is the most common raise size, Barry, that people po posit there with three limpers? Probably like, I don't know, 7, 8x or something. It's always 7x. It is 7x 1,000% of the time. Like, not 1,000% of the time. Hyperbole is a thing. But uh, it, it's 7x every single time. Have you ever seen anybody fold the 7x in that spot? No. Ever? 
So no. now you got a four-way plot and you got to hit the board. Yeah. So this is what everybody tells me. This is just an example of poor pre-flop play will lead you to going broke. So everybody gets aces in that spot. They go, I got to thin the field here, 7x. They get called by everybody. There's a 28x pot out there. The board comes king, 6, 8. Check, check, check around. EC bets 15x. He gets check raised to 35x, comes around to him, and he goes, it would be super weak for me to fold here. Yeah. Right, even though the waitress walking by knows it's pocket sixes at this point, or six eight of diamonds that was just goofing off, or king eight of spades that was goofing or off, king six suited easily, <laughs> yeah, exactly, king six suited or something like that. So now he calls an additional 20x. 20x is your win rate for two and a half hours, three hours. Mm -hmm. The session is gone because you did not raise. 15x instead of 7x are something to the point that would get you heads up versus a wide range in position. And that's just an example. That's from the passive game section. But in my lessons, I have had hundreds of these questions, which is, what do I do in a game where every hand is raised and called by two people? In the aggressive game section of master small stakes cash games in one class, I'll teach you how to squeeze on those players and keep the ball in your court. In the tight game section, we'll talk about what to do with old man coffee people, right? You know, the guys who just sit there for the coffee and conversation with the dealers. Uh, in terrible game section, we'll discuss what to do when one guy just keeps three betting you constantly, how you can get him to stop doing that. And let's say there's a straddle. Well, there's a short stacking session in master small stakes cash games in one class that'll tell you how short stackers make their money with 50 big blinds, what their ranges are, what they open with, what they raise to, what boards they continue to, who has done this, what do their graphs look like? There's an entire section on multi-way pots that can tell you how to exact value in multi-way pots but not be on the hook, how to not bust your aces versus the king six. There's a lot of that. And there's a section about catching bluffs because one thing about cash games that's very different than tournaments is people bluff a lot more. Because when you can just reload and it's like 28 bucks, like, hey, it's kind of amusing, right? I'm going to check raise you and see what happens. Whereas in tournaments, people go, it's a finite number of chips. I only got 33x here. Do I really want to check raise this guy as a bluff and leave myself 21x? It becomes a little less common. So there's an entire section on catching bluffs, and there's an entire new section on out-of-position defense. If you're at the point where you're going, hey, back in the day, nobody called out of the big blind. Now everybody calls out of the big blind, and I feel like people have learned how to check race from the big blind. I don't think I'm making a whole lot of money out of there. I think you're absolutely right. But what you're going to want to do is three-bet more out of the big blind. And take a lot of these guys that are just opening 40% of their hands and then flatting with the vast majority of them, take them to the flop. I think even without the benefit, the benefit of position, you still will find a way to chop out a lot of those pots and eventually get them to stop coming after your big line. This has worked really well with my students lately. There's an entire section on that. I'm really happy about this one, Barry. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'm making a whole lot more of these. Uh, that's not marketing BS. I had a list two and a half years ago of like 10 different products I wanted to make or 10 different topics I wanted to make about, uh, about poker strategy and whatnot. I've hit every one of those. I've worked like a madman for two and a half years to develop the, these programs because one, it's, I don't know. I, I, do you ever just like tinkering with your projects, Barry? Are you one of those guys that just likes being left alone and tinkering with your projects? Yeah, when I start them, I end up tinkering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, just how like some guys like work on their cars in their garage like all the time. I work on these, right? But yeah. it's, uh, I'm literally like I counted the other day and it was something like 140 episodes in the Gumroad store. I'm thinking like, all right, man. I think you've hit everything. Now, if like Mike Wasserman wants to uh, discuss some of his expertise or something like that, I'd be happy to help him with that if he even wants to work with me on that or if he wants to do that on his own. Obviously, that's totally cool as well. But 
as far as things I feel I can teach better than most of my competition, I master small stakes cash games was like, that's my big flag in the ground. It's 20 episodes. It's 14 hours. It's near 14 hours. It's not completely 14 hours. And average going rate to work with a poker trainer is about $200 an hour. Uh, this is actually just $199 for the whole kid and caboodle. Uh, so you don't have to drop 2K on getting a full master class. And it's normally going to be $799, but until September 1st, August 31st at 11.59 p.m., the, the sale ends. You can get it for $199. And if you click through Barry's link, he gets to wet his beak a little bit. He gets a little taste, you know? And we can uh, keep bribing him with box sets to come out and use his Scottish brogue on this podcast, and we can do more of these. You into it, Barry? Yeah, definitely. And I also want to echo, I put it out on Twitter when the last promo we did with a one-outer promo code for the discount and stuff for people. I really meant it when I said it. Like, thanks to every one of you that bought stuff and used that code. And Alex, you know, got some extra sales. I got my commission and you all got like ridiculous discounts off whatever you bought in his gum road. So, and it was such a varied purchase. There was uh, Master Tournament Poker in one class, How to Win the Sunday Million. Like some people were buying up one, two, three, and the sale did end. It wasn't one of these, like I said, you know, the, the Expedia sales on every bloody week in my email account. <laughs> Apart from when it's somewhere you want to actually go, it's full price. But I'm glad everybody got a good deal. I made some money. Alex made some good sales. It was the closest you can get to some sort of like business commercial utopia. So this time, as Alex mentioned, I'm going to put a link in the show notes on oneouter.com in episode 207. Um, if you just click into there, there will be a link to the product and it is Master Small Stakes Cash Games in One Class. And as Alex mentioned, you can buy it for $199 up until midnight on August 31st. After that, it's going up to $799. So I would really appreciate it if you did buy it through that link and got it that way. And um, yeah, so the other thing we're going to do is we're going to answer this other question. And I was going to say there, what I'm going to do as well is for people that use that link uh, that I put in the show notes, I'm going to throw something else as well. Alex, do you get the people's details who buy through that link? Absolutely good, sir. So, right. Okay. What I'm going to do then is to spice it up a bit and throw another little incentive in. I'm going to offer a $30 Amazon purchase to anybody that buys through that link as like, a, uh, we'll do a lottery for, you know, so say there's like 10 people buy it. Alex will put their 10, give, give 10 of you, you know, each a number and we'll do like a random number generator and whoever wins it, I'm going to go 30 bucks to Amazon and buy, they can buy a credit or, or I'll buy it for them and get it shipped to their house or whatever. So a poker book, one of Alex's things, or, you know, yada, yada. I'll do, I'll throw a $30 free roll in for someone. So whoever does that, they'll be like they got it for $170 if they get picked. So we'll, we'll do that as like an extra little uh, bonus. Um, so, yeah, that's it. So Master Small Stakes Cash Games in one class. $199 for the next nine days, and then it's going up to $799. And please use the link that will be in the show notes, and I'll post in the Facebook group. And that way I get a little cut, and you get into the free $30 lottery as well. Um, okay, Alex, let's go to the next question now, and we will finish with that for the for this episode. And this one is from Herb Vasquez. I love that name. Um, Cashing but never winning. First of all, I just want to say that I discovered the podcast last fall and I've been working through the episodes in reverse order. This has provided for some uniquely hilarious moments. The best part was hearing how much of a headache it was for Alex to take his dogs on a flight and then in the next episode listening to how optimistic he was a few days before the flight. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, anyways, my question is about one of Alex's regarding players who cash a lot but never win. 
I'm a winning player at MTTs under $10, mostly on ACR in the mornings. And I believe I fall into this category. If you look at my shark scope, it's a very slow climb. Other than simple variance, what have you noticed in players who cash a lot but never win? Thank you. $1,100 and about an inch of paperwork to get my dogs into the country, and the customs official did not read one page of it once I finally got there. Just it, for those of you who are just tuning into the podcast <laughs> for the first time, if you want to know why I was so pissed off, and the, 80% of that $1,100 they did to me at the gate. They were like, oh, yeah, we can't let them on except for this completely went back on everything they told me over the phone, which was they need to be in one carrier, absolutely one carrier. If they're two small dogs, has to be in one carrier. I get to the gate. They're supposed to be in two separate carriers. The only way we can do this now is with more money. It's like, isn't that convenient? Anyway, uh, guys who do not win tournaments. We'll go back to something that... Sounds extremely simple, but takes many tournament players a long time to learn, which is if you want to make money in tournament poker, you're going to have to learn to cash a lot and you're going to need to learn to win a lot. Those are the two biggest payout jumps in tournament poker from second to first and from nothing to something. You will need to find a way to cross those thresholds with regularity. Uh, so to give you an example... If uh, you will notice, if you look at the Assassinato on Full Tilt Poker on Sharkscope, uh, back when I was playing on the dot-com sites, pretty good results, but not a huge cash game. Uh, excuse me, not a huge cash game. Uh, not a huge cashing rate, right? Well, when they start paying more of the field in first place is worth less, guess what becomes really important is cashing. So... I say all of this, Mr. Vasquez, to say you already have half of the formula, which is you got to learn how to cash quite a bit. You also have another part of the formula, which is straight after my heart, which is you found really soft games. You play on the mornings. In the mornings, it's probably a lot of uh, stay-at-home people hanging out as opposed to the night where if I get to play, it's at night. That's after I, I've done my lessons and that's when I have, uh, that's when it's prime time hours. That's when every reg is on there. You've decided I'm gonna go into slightly a more shallow pool, but I still think there's some fish in there and you made it work. Half of the master small six cash games in one class, the first five episodes are about game selection because I truly believe in, I truly believe that is 90% of the game. And you are taking that on. I would have never been able to go pro if I had not started playing between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. every night. That is how I went pro. Uh, because everybody was really drunk at that point, but I was waking up at 2, 3, 4 p.m. every day or 1.30 p.m. at the earliest. So I was still pretty cogent at that time. So you got two-thirds of the puzzle right now, which is soft games, cash a lot. Okay, great. How do we get the last piece of the puzzle? How do we start winning tournaments? I find one thing that really helps a lot of guys is realizing if they want to get past those payout jumps, the way to do it is to gun for people who clearly care about those payout jumps. That is the way you will move up because a lot of people that cash a lot, they're just they're kind of biding their time and they go, oh, if I move up from 16th to 15th, it's an extra couple of bucks. We want those first place finishes. Once you get the min cash, that's most of your work is keeping your cash rate up quite a bit, right? Now, once you're in there, I find the most common reason people are not winning tournaments is they are failing to three bet people that open too much. That is because there's usually one guy and he's actually doing something fairly intelligent. Let's say a really good poker player sits down and he has queen eight suited on the low jack. Now, at the beginning of the tournament, he might not open that when there's not annies in play. At the middle of the tournament, when uh, everybody's still emboldened and they're far away from the money, 
he might not open that. But maybe in the money, he will open that because there's so much blind, there's so much in regards to the blinds and annies in there. And also people at that 30, 40x spot that a lot of people are at when they're in the money, they just don't want a three bet a hand like ace jack offsuit. They'd rather turn that into a call. But the thing is, now the guy has queen eight of diamonds and he gets to see a flop. He'll turn some kind of profit. Now, the thing about a lot of those guys that open really wide, the reason they can do that is nobody tests them. If you're the one guy who breaks rank and tests them, one of a couple of things is going to happen. One, nobody wants to hear this. You go broke sometimes, right? You three bet, you get jammed on, that's it. But many people, they're doing that play to begin with because they're not used to people three betting them that much. So if you see a very low four bet percentage, 10%, 12%, something along those lines, and you see a very wide raise first end, 25, 30% or something like that, I think we really need to explore the three bet if we're will, really willing to play. Maybe that king queen offsuit needs to be turned into a three bet. And usually at those stack sizes in the money, 40x, 35x, 45x, if they miss the board, they will check fold a lot of the time because a check raise is really awkward. That's like half the chips. If you call there now, it's about a third of the chips and you're out of position floating. You can get away with that. The other, the other way I see people not win a number of times, this one's a little in opposition to what I just said, but sometimes... You're in the money with a bunch of rags. This happens a lot these days. There's a lot of poker players on earth. And they do know about that three bet. But at the beginning of the tournament, you were just destroying weekend warriors and opening anything you wanted. And you were getting away with it because at the worst, you got a multi-way pod and you knew how to handle yourself there. And at the best, and this happened a lot, the big blind just kept calling you. But you just keep opening and folding to a three bet, 2.5x, 2.5x, 2.5x. Soon you've just crippled yourself. You're in rejam or fold territory. You've got nothing left to play with. You're hoping for things to work out. You see that a lot. You'll see a lot of American guys who just destroy, let's say, like the WSOPC events because you can get away with opening quite a bit there because you'll get called around in a lot of these smaller markets. And then you'll see those guys play in the Bahamas. You'll see them play in Europe. And they know how to three-bet you at some point, right? Or you go to Vegas. Like, people have learned, okay, you know, if a guy's opening a little Queen 8 suited on the low jack, I can three-bet my ace jack here. Uh, I'd like to see him four-bet at once. I'd like to see him get his heart rate up once and four-bet before I believe he can do it. They've learned that. So you got to be looking for both of those. Uh, the other thing I see a lot of the time is a failure to accept reality on reality's terms. There's a lot of times when you're like 10 tabling at the beginning of the session, you just showed up, you're happy to play poker, you just had your cup of coffee, you know, it's a, you're, you're feeling good. You play more or less automatic, you don't really let one table get to you. Then you're one tabling, it's a lot later at night, you're tired, you can't give yourself that caffeinated boost anymore. And you start seeing people who, you, you have, I hear this all the time, which is guy opens, uh, cut off, he's got King Jack, uh, Big Blind calls him, and he goes, this guy's been fighting with me nonstop. The board, you've heard that a hundred times, right, Barry? Yeah. Uh, oh, this guy's coming after me. It's like, and or he's defending his big blind. Maybe you're not that important, right? And uh, the board comes king two eight, or like, excuse me, queen two eight. The guy checks to him. He does a C bet. He picks an appropriate amount that'll fold out the high cards because that's mostly what the guy's going to have. And the guy calls him. Guy's probably got a pair. Okay, pretty basic stuff. Do no limit hold'em players. Like folding pairs? Typically not. So, okay, I guess most of the time we should give up here. But you'll see guys when they're one tabling, they've had to wait for a while. They go, I haven't had a hand in 30 minutes, and this guy's just going to float me. And it's like, I'm going to take him off his hand right there. It's like, there, tournament's gone. You lost it. That turn bet, you just pissed away when most likely the guy's got a pair, and he's not folding. Even if the turn is an ace, 
The guy's not folding on eight. That does not happen anymore. If he's a good player, he might. But, I mean, you hear this a thousand times. I'm going to call and reevaluate the river. You know loss aversion is a thing. The guy doesn't want to fold. We need to accept reality on reality's terms, which is the vast majority of data shows people, they make, they'll fold their high cards on the flop, they call with their pairs, and they have a really hard time folding their pairs from that point on, right? Like the average fold to a turn bet, average fold to a river bet is like 33, 35 on most databases you'll look at. So if you're betting half pot, that needs to work 33% of the time. It's more or less a wash. And if the board's more or less dry, it's most likely not going to get the guy off the pair. So you see a lot of guys just have, they'll do this thing where they go, oh my God, this guy just won't fold me. And they bet turn. And then on the river, the guy turns over 8-7 and somehow it's that guy's fault, right? He made a really good call on you, but it's like, oh my God, he called me with this stupid hand. It's like, no, 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 no. You know how people operate. You didn't accept it. You you just had to uh yeah you had to uh you just had to show that you were somehow better than them, right? You couldn't accept that the guy just hit a pair and he's not folding, such is life. Wait, wait for the next day. You see a lot of that. You'll also see people they'll open from middle position and the cutoff cold calls them. And the cutoff is like an 18-15. Okay, what's his cold calling range here? It's pretty damn tight. It's a lot of good pairs. It's a lot of good suited connectors. And it's some big cards. Okay. The board comes like queen 10-5. One spade. The guy has ace state of spades. And he goes, I have a backdoor flush draw and straight draw. I'm going to see that. And it's like, okay, that is one part of a very large hole that this guy... This is a two Broadway card board. His board, his range is, there's a flush draw out there. His entire cold calling range is what, 12% if we're lucky? He, he has hit this board more than two thirds of the time if we look at this in Flopzilla. He has, and when he does have gut shots, he has those premium gut shots, right? That draw to uh, the Broadway straight, right? It, those guys, if they have a backdoor draw or whatever, this guy's not folding. And the, you'll see a lot of guys when they're multi-tabling, they'll raise from early position. A guy calls them in position. The board comes queen 10, whatever. And they go, oh, crap, I checked. They have no emotional attachment at that point. But now that when they're one-tabling, it's like, it's time to win the tournament. Now they start C-betting when they shouldn't be C-betting. They start flatting when they should be three-betting. And they start double-barreling when they should be accepting. This guy probably doesn't want to fold. And that's the way you tank a lot of your deep runs. You got deep for a reason. You don't have to completely reimagine your game at this point. If anything, there's a lot of times... I'm sure this has happened to you too, Barry. You sit there in a tournament with 50 people left, and you notice every time you open, somebody wants to three-bet... You notice that nobody's folding to anything because they got to show each other who's got the sickest call or whatever. So you more or less focus on, okay, I'll open specifically when I think I can get the big blind to myself and I'll just try to see that I'm off that and I'll play my decent hands or whatever. And then magically you're at the final table, right? Everybody else just killed themselves because they had to show each other how sick they are. But all that was was maturity. It, it, respecting reality and also being open-minded because sometimes you'll get to that final table and you'll notice everybody who is such a swashbuckler with 39 people left isn't so brazen when the cameras are there or when their friends and family are watching or their girlfriend who's been wondering if this poker career is going to turn into anything and has been with this guy for six years is now looking at money that could be a house in their country, you find some people don't find the three bet at that point. Now you can open up again and try all these things. Now maybe that double barrel will work. Uh, I hope, Mr. Vasquez, these tips have helped you. It's funny. It's like if you actually go back to the sort of start of the, you know, the question or Alex's response, I always used to explain it to that guy who I knew and he always used to want him going, 
you know, it's the old joke about move up to where they respect your raises, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I used to say to them, no, you want the extreme situation, the best game you could ever play is you against eight other people who don't know the rules of no limit hold'em. You know, they don't know the, the hand rankings or whatever. Or So you want people, it's like when I was in Vegas, there was a woman playing at my table in the Venetian she sat down with $200. She got lucky a few times. She had the nut flush. I checked it to her. She had the nuts on the river and she checked and turns her cars over. With her. <laughs> I had a lower, I had like a nine high flush. She had the nut flush and I checked and she just checked and turned the nuts over. And those are the games you want. And obviously sometimes these people are going to get lucky against you or they're, they're going to put it in where, you know, in quotes, they shouldn't have, et cetera, et cetera. But these are the games that you want to be playing, like 100%. I remember when I used to play local cash games when the the Golf Open was ever in St. Andrews or um, Carnoustie Golf Course or whatever in Scotland. There'd be lots of these you know, tourists over, like some Europeans, some Americans, and they'd come and they'd, there was this one guy, I always remember, we were playing 1-1 and it would come to him and he'd throw in 100 chips hit 1-1, one, one, you know, and we're sitting going, this is just, you know, the guys, he, he was playing roulette and three-card brag and stuff like that, and he, he'd won about a few thousand dollars, and he's sitting down with a load of these green chips sitting, and it's, you know, it's 1-1, one, one, and it's like someone will make it three, and it'll come to him, and he's like, yeah, 100, and I'm like, wow, this is, you just sat there and waited on, you know, premiums and just got it in, it was great. Okay, okay, Barry, oh, okay, you already answered my question. You brought up a great memory one time where I heard a guy one time, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he was talking about the exact same situation, which was he was playing late night in Las Vegas, and some guy wanted to show his date from the clubs what a boss he was and sat down with his gaudy Italian suit, which didn't actually fit that well, so you wonder how well it was tailored, and he had his gold jewelry on. And he said, does cash play? And in this particular institution, it did. Or wherever it was, Vegas. I can't remember where it was, right? And the guy just had this brick of cash. And he would just slam it down like every table, right? And stare at the guy and go all in. Mm -hmm. And I heard this guy who said he wanted to be a professional poker player. He was like, oh, my God. It was the most boring eight hours of my life. And I, now, what you're thinking, Barry, is what are you talking about, right, yeah. when you hear that? Because you're in it for the money, aren't you, Barry? Of course. You're in it to win. So it's like, this is the simplest strategy ever. Yeah. I just put in my headphones. Hell, you can listen to audiobooks now and just wait. Or if you think that's going to get them off the scent, just sit there and out of the corner of your eyes, watch basketball. This is the easiest job on earth. Are you serious? I think what, there's two things a poker player needs that I don't think is as common as people believe it is. One, you got to want the money. That sounds really ridiculous, but that person who was complaining about that game wanted the game of poker to be this beautiful game that, quite frankly, it's not a lot of the time. And if you're trying to make the most money, it's a hustling game, essentially. It is knowing the odds better than the other guy, knowing what boards miss the other guy, making him see something that's not there. It's a very polite hustling game. It is a very, I, I'm struggling for the words. It is a fine recreation where men who normally are honest in their day-to-day -day lives get to play at hustling each other. That's what it is, right? And in sometimes it's most profitable situation. It is a very blunt instrument the way you're going to make your money it such as the game that barry just previewed for us or just discussed with us uh the second thing that i think a poker player needs is you need to know what you don't know there's poker in my mind you can have a lot of horsepower you can have a really high q iq and not be a terrific poker player because poker needs you to be, you need to look outside of yourself. I don't know if wisdom would be the correct word, but you need to be a little bit more impartial 
And I will take the guy with an ounce of wisdom and know-how over the guy with the razor-high IQ who just needs everything to be a certain way. There's so many times you'll see this where a kid who doesn't think he knows anything will be playing in like a really loose game like Barry was just talking about where people aren't even sure of the hand rankings or anything and they'll ISO raise and they'll have their big pair and they, they get called by more people than they like and they go, okay. But more or less they go, all right, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I notice these people don't like raising in general. So if they raise, I'm just going to trust they have it. Right. And you'll see those guys just like they get their big pair and they value bed and they value bed down and they make really good money. And then there will come a pot where the guy gets raised. Let's say he has king queen and the board comes king 10 five. He C bets. And for the first time, one of these players raises, right? And he'll sit there and go, I'm on a roll and I'm taking the money from these guys. I don't know what the hell this is. This guy hasn't raised at all. I'm just going to fold right here. So he quietly folds. And the other guy goes, I had it, mate. Good fold. And shows King Jack. Now, I will take the guy all day of the week who will laugh and go, nice hand, and not show his hand. And go, good for you. Way to take that pot. Pocket that information. This guy raises weak pairs. And just goes on with his day because poker is not a game of perfect and you're not going to be perfect. And nine times out of 10, when that guy raises there, he's got the joint. If nobody has raised the entire night and somebody raises there, that is someone who just flopped his said knows damn well he's supposed to be juicing the pot or he's got king 10 or something along those lines. You struck out. It happens. But you will see people go, that they can't handle this game. I'm going to move up to a game where they respect my raises. This idiot raised me with King Jack. It's like, no, 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 no. You're still in an amazing, amazing game here. Let's look at the whole schematic and see how we were winning up to this moment. And now you have more information. You're likely going to continue winning. I completely agree, Barry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all we got time for this episode. It was good to catch up with Alex again, get a few more questions answered. And Alex is bringing this exciting news, his first one and probably his last one for a good while. And certainly your first one on uh, cash games, master small stakes cash games in one class. And as Alex mentioned earlier, it's currently available for $199, normally $799 after August 31st. The link, if you want to purchase that, will be in the show notes of this episode on oneouter.com. And I'll also post it in the Facebook group and on Twitter. Alex, thanks for joining us today. We will try and do another one in the future. So keep your questions coming in. Questions at oneouter.com. And Chris and what was it like? Keith, who I mentioned at the start of the show, if you are listening, please send your questions in again. And I promise they will be the first two we do on the next show. Alex, is there anything you want to say before we just wrap it up? If you guys click on that link, it has a free 40-minute promotional video on it. So if you enjoyed this podcast and we're loving the strategy content, you just want some more, there's a free 40-minute Master Small Stakes Cash Games in one class video. It is a great, fun lecture called The Five Biggest Cash Game Mistakes. It's a quiz, so you can test yourself at home. Uh, I bet I get you on one of the questions. Good luck to you guys on that. Okay. And until next time, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.